we're continuing this new uh, theme uh, series that Chuck had started uh, in Ephesians, titled Who Am I? Um, it was my delight and privilege to be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 2 uh, today, particularly verses 1 to 10. The reason why I, I say it gave me uh, great joy is because just as usual, we're all standing, talking, milling around, chatting to one another, it just gave me a, a moment just to stand back and just to look at you all in one sense, just to survey you all, and just to reflect that I think I know most of you, and I think I know where most of you are with God, and they know that you have all been recipients of amazing grace. And it's such a wonderful um, thing. You know, for most part of the service before we started this morning, I felt a bit like a racehorse, <laughs> you know, trapped in the stalls waiting to go. And I was thinking, of fear, oh goodness, I want to go, but yet fearing that when the gate opens, I'm just going to trip and fall. <laughs> because it's such a wonderful, awe-inspiring thing to reflect on the grace of God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, Amazing Grace. And we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And uh, Gordon here has a wonderful Bible monitor. And if you'd like one, it would be his pleasure to give you one. And as we always say, and we do mean it, if you don't have one at home, please take it away as a little gift from us. So with that, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And it reads this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What an amazing passage. You know, the whole of Ephesians is like a continuous outpouring of Paul's as he delves deeper and he gazes and reflects on the revelation of God and what Jesus has done, he just can't help but stop praising and praising and praising and realizing what Christ has done. And then he just keeps on praising and praising. It's one of the most uplifting and wonderful letters in the whole of Scripture. 
It is absolutely wonderful. You know, when he started it in chapter 1, you think, oh, this is magnificent. Paul has taken us to the heights. And he's just the sheer exuberance and his pleasure and his wonder and the person of Jesus Christ. And yet suddenly, when we come into chapter 2, we suddenly we fall off a cliff edge. And he takes us to the depths as well. I was going to start this morning by asking you a very odd question. <laughs> I'm still going to ask it. Have you ever been in a zombie movie? <laughs> Maybe not. It, just, it might seem a bit, not too far-fetched. A couple of years ago, they, they filmed a, a big-budget Hollywood movie, and they used Glasgow uh, for some of the backdrop. I think it was called World War Z, starring Brad Pitt. Yeah, some of you may have even seen it. It was a zombie movie, a zombie apocalypse movie where the dead come to life and destroy the world and things like that. I haven't seen it, but I certainly knew that if you wanted to be in a zombie movie, Glasgow was the place to be. <laughs> I don't know how well it did in the box offices, but I certainly remember it anyway. Now, the reason I'm asking you that question is you say, that's just silly. What does that get anything to do with this passage? Well... When you listen to what Paul has just said about the human condition, in one sense we all belonged to the living dead. Literally we did. A zombie, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, it's a, it's a, a thing of, of horror films. It's a, a creature that's technically dead. <laughs> it's a, a petrifying corpse that has been reanimated. It's a, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's, a, it's a perversion of the human nature and the human character of everything that a human being was intended to be. That's what a zombie is. A dead thing, animated. But when you look at it and when you see it, it is dead. Paul tells us that we were all of that nature. We think ourselves living and breathing, but before God, we were all dead. A horrible dead thing that had no life in it whatsoever. He said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. You know, historically, the same one of the most tragic human tragedies or disasters was the Titanic. We're all familiar with the story now. I mean, it was forever uh, um, be rememberable with Kate Blanchett and... Leonardo DiCaprio in the film. Winslet. Kate Winslet, sorry. And we all know the story. I mean, this was the ship. It was be the, 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 the ship of all ships. It was the best of the best. It was described as being unsinkable. No expense was paid. This was the greatest ship in existence. But yet, on its very maiden voyage, it sailed into the North Atlantic. And its whole hull was ruptured by an iceberg, and some 1,500 people were drowned, sunk, dead, to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, and it still sits there today. 
It's been described as probably the most tragic historical drama or disaster in existence. But you know what? It's not. There was one that happened far, far earlier than that. And it happened in the Garden of Eden. Where humanity, you could say, in its maiden voyage, it crashed. It sunk. You know, and what should have been a wonderful, blessed experience that would continue on forever and ever and ever was ruined by a single choice and decision to step aside from God's counsel. Where mankind said, seduced by Satan, said, God, actually, I think I've got a better idea how to live my life. And in Adam and Eve, man chose a different path. Despite the warnings of God, he was said, do not go against my word. Do not do that thing, or you will surely die. And we know the story of what happened in the Garden of Eden. They took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, and they did die. They didn't physically die in a sense, but they died that day before God. And they were sent into exile. You know, I never noticed it before, but in chapter 3, when it says, you know, when God sent them out of the garden, it wasn't like a nice, gentle, oh, I'm very sorry to see you go, oh, I hope to see you again. He says that he drove them out. He drove them out. The only other place where I saw that, uh, that sense of that word happening again was when Jesus was in the temple himself, and they turned it a, a perversion again and set it up as a, a gambler's station. And what did he do? He took a rope and a cord and he drove them out. He threw over the, the tables. Again, it, it doesn't have any sense of a nice pleasantries around it. It was a horrible thing. And it had remained a horrible thing from that day on. The greatest tragedy in human history wasn't the Titanic. It was the day when all of humanity chose to reject God. And we became, in that same day, something abhorrent to God. We became something horrible in His sight. We became, in a sense, like the living dead, with no hope, no future. The cycle of being reproduced and then dying would just continue on and on and on forever, or so it would seem. You know, literally in one sense, the, the, the whole Bible could have ended in chapter 2. It could have ended there. And God would have been just. It would have, he would have been just. But, and we love the but. It is. Dude! <laughs> But God, <laughs> he didn't want to end it there. In fact, he pointed to a promise that one day he would do something to reverse the curse. He would do something to reverse it. He was going to salvage man, humankind. He was going to salvage us. He was going to raise us from the dead. He was going to make us alive again. But how could he do that? 
How, how on earth could he do that? How can you make a dead thing alive? You know, the reason I'm pressing this home so much is because this sto- I'm, I'm talking about grace this morning, but it doesn't sound much like grace. But you know, to understand grace, we need to know where we came from and how it applies to us. We need to know the situation that we're in, the circumstances, the predicament that we find ourselves in in order to appreciate grace. I'm sure many of us at some point in our lives can remember a moment where grace came to us in some shape or form, and we we knew it and we recognized it because of the very thing that it achieved for us in that moment that was otherwise impossible. I can remember stories and occasions where somebody has done something for me that has rescued me from a situation, a circumstance that maybe perhaps I had created, and purely by their good pleasure. They decided they wanted to help me in that moment. They didn't have to. And when it came, I was like, wow, thank you. I know you didn't have to do that, but you did it. And you did it for me. You've shown me grace. And this is what God does to us in Christ Jesus. The but is the, <laughs> is the but of God that he wants to stop the death, the misery, a lost state, and reverse it and turn it around. And he does that and then through Christ. You know, there was a story, there was many stories from the, the Lewis Revival. And there was one occasion where, if you don't know the story of Lewis Rival, the, the, the Spirit of God came upon that place. It's still in living memory. I think it was in the 1940s. Where the Spirit of God came upon the series of islands. And everyone who lived in that island, whether they were a visitor, whether they were a resident, whatever, were completely convicted by the Spirit of God. And what I mean was that they became aware of the presence of God. And the funny thing is, you, you see this in the Bible, whenever people draw close to God or God draws close to people, the common denominator is that everyone is convicted of their guilt. It's like a, a sudden exposure of the horridness of their lives. Regardless of whether you're a rebel or a respectable person, before God, every one of us has a horrible track record. And that was a common theme of everybody who experienced in the revival, was that conviction before God that my life isn't right. And so the ministers had a hard job (laughs) during that season. Everywhere they went, people were convicted, falling down, whether they were in the field, whether they were at home, whether they were in the pub, wherever they were. A conviction of the Spirit of God coming upon them. And the minister went to visit one particular home where the mother uh, had contacted the minister and said, oh, yeah, you'll need to come because I can't remember our son's name, but he was in the barn, convicted. 
been through the process of conviction. And the minister as he arrives, he says, I'll just go away and speak to him. And his mother said, stop, minister. The Lord is doing a work in him. That sounds rather cruel, doesn't it? He's sitting in the barn undergoing a, a, a sense of conviction, being faced, assaulted with the sin and the depravity of his life, tormented, grief-stricken, broken-hearted. And his mum says to the minister, stop, <laughs> don't speak to him yet. It was for good reason. Because the Lord was preparing them to receive grace. You know, the minister in, in, in good well would have rushed in there. But sometimes you need to pause for a moment. In order to appreciate grace and our need for it, we need to first recognize how much we need it. And that was that, what that mother was doing with the minister. She said, Minister, just, just wait. Just wait for a moment. The Lord is doing something with him. Yeah, the minister did go <laughs> in the end. And when he did, his heart was completely wide open and ready to receive the gospel. The good news, the grace of God. And I even have to say, even this morning, you know, sometimes we still, at times, the Spirit does still convict us of sin. And it's for good purpose. It's almost like a, a herding movement bringing us back into the fold. Don't fear the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit at times. He's a good shepherd. And it's there to bring us back into the fold. And he does that first and foremost when he introduces us to the gospel, to the person of Jesus Christ. In order to recognize grace and to receive grace, we have to first recognize our need of grace. But in recognizing our need for grace, God does a wonderful thing. He gives it to us and he lavishes it on us. And as Paul says, he makes us alive in Christ. He makes us alive in grace. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. You know, the word grace in the New Testament, it comes from the word charis. And it means favor, blessing, or kindness. You know, and we can express that and, and extend that to others. But they're all shadows of the greater grace that's been shown and revealed to us in God first. Can you imagine the most horrible thing that anyone could ever do to you? It's maybe not a nice thought. And in that, you rise to a position of power or authority over that person. And what would you do? Your first instinct would be, to, well, I want to get retribution. I want to get justice. I want to exact, uh, exact vengeance on that person. And you would be morally right to do so. In fact, you may even be ex expectation upon you to do so, to deliver some kind of retribution. But grace, grace is the opposite. 
It's an undeserved act, an unction of God to do something completely and totally unexpected and undeserved. He says that we are made alive in Christ. Literally, it's our complete reversal of fortune. Where we were previously dead, we are made alive. Everything that made us dead is reversed. When Jesus suffered on the cross, it was a complete role reversal. Where the Son of God took our place on the cross. He literally takes our place on the cross. We were dead and he was alive. He became dead that we might be alive. He became unrighteous that we might become righteous. He became guilty that we might become free. Do you see? Everything that should have been ours and was ours before Christ now became him. Everything that was his became ours. An absolute reversal of circumstances. Where we were dead to God, we are now alive to God. Where we were disconnected from God, enemies of God, we are now children of God. And it all comes by way of grace. God's absolute grace. Forgiveness, where there was condemnation before. And Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus himself. You know, when I was a teen and I'd left competition, swimming behind, I learned how to do um, life-saving. I did the bronze medallion and the award of merit, where you learn life-saving skills and how to do CPR and all that stuff. Thankfully, I've never had the occasion to use it. But you know, I was thinking about that as I was reading that passage. We used to practice on a dummy called Rususian, I think it was called. Rususiani. It was this kind of half-body thing where we practiced chest compressions and the, the breathing. You know what? The only difference between what we were like and Rususiani before we were in Christ, was that Rosaciani was made of plastic. <laughs> Neither of us had anything in us that could reanimate ourselves, that could bestow life upon ourselves. There was nothing that either you or I could ever do that could change our circumstances, that could change our state from being dead to alive in God. Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul keeps saying it again and again. It is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace, not by works. There is nothing that you can cling to or claim or do or say or anything, nothing in your family history, some great accolade in the past that you can raise up and say, well, well, God, what about me? It's worthless. It's dead. God in his grace and in his kindness he comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the one who reaches down into the fourth of our death and pulls us out. Our only response is to respond in faith and believing. 
I accept it. I want it. I want to be alive. As you just try to scramble up the pit yourself because you're not going to get anywhere. It's by a surrendering of the will and saying, Lord, you're the only one that can save me. And so he reaches down and he pulls us up. He pulls us up out of death. You know, John Newton, in his hymn, Amazing Grace, we're all familiar with it. We may be in part familiar with his story. He was once a slave trader. He was the worst of the worst. And when he faced imminent death himself, he was realized he, he was confronted with his immortality and what was awaiting him should he continue on this path of indefiance and rebellion against God, the only source of life, that he would remain a dead man, a condemned man. So it wasn't just out of fear that he responded to God. It was out of sheer adulterated love extended towards him. All the years of cursing and slanging and cursing God, he realized what God was offering him. Despite everything that he was, he responded to amazing grace. How could he not write that hymn after that? And in fact, you know, many of us here this morning, we could probably all write a rain, Amazing Grace. We probably could. Because each and every one of us has a story and a song to sing about the amazing grace of God that's been extended towards us. You know, I still keep coming back to it, but I can't help it. But my own testimony. You know, I, I, I know I've shared the story quite a few times, and Judas told me I've shared it quite a few times, but I can't help but telling it. But because it's my experience of God's grace. You know, when I stood in Celtic Park and I invited Christ to be my Lord, the sheer wonder in that moment, it, it's, I try and use words, but in a sense it's inexpressible. I likened it to a sense of coming home but to a home that I never experienced before. This was the home of homes. This was the place where I always belonged and where I should have always been. A place of absolute love and grace and kindness. Not anything in me that required her deserved this. I didn't. But this is what grace is. To receive something so wonderful. So wonderful is beyond your comprehension. Do you understand? And when we receive this grace, by its very nature and its recognition, it has an instant transforming effect. Sometimes, the gospel can be in danger presented almost like a meal ticket. Yeah, just say this, and you're booked a ticket to heaven. Do you really understand what that is? 
Jesus isn't just a meal ticket. He's a transformation. A transformation of the whole person. What you were previously is a dead thing now. You've left that behind. Be to be alive in Christ is to be alive in Christ. My identity, the remnant of who I am, whatever makes me who I am, is now in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm enveloped in him. I can't help but be transformed by him. It wasn't just that I get a second chance at life. This is a completely new and different life. It's different from what I was before. Everything that I was before was marked and had the stench of death on it. I am now alive in Christ. I belong to him. I am controlled by him. And I'm not afraid to use that word. I don't mean that in a demonstrative way or a, a, a robotic sense. But I am his. His life is now in me. And my life is now in him. The way that I think, the way that I act, the way that I speak, the way that I interact with people now has and should be have a whole Christ-centeredness towards it. I still get grumpy now and again. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> but I know it when I see it. And I apologize for it. Because that's not who I am anymore. And this is what it means to be active in grace. You know, somebody told a story once. Well, it was this uh, fellow, I can't remember his name, but he used to run a Bible study for, for young people, young teens. And this was probably about 100 years ago. And he had a young man, a young lad, who came from one of the Native American tribes uh, who somehow got involved. But it was all new to him. He didn't know anything about the gospel or about Jesus. But he was invited to come along to one of these Bible studies where they were talking about law and grace. And so the, the, the Bible study group of young people were talking about it and trying to explain what law and grace was and how they were different. And this young lad was just sitting there listening. And he was listening. And then somebody asked him, could, could, could you explain what's your thoughts on this whole thing? And he said, well, the way I see it is, is when I arrived, I, I, I arrived at the, the train platform and there was a sign there that says, do not spit. It was over an area of the platform, and obviously said, but even though the sign says, do not spit, people did spit. And you could see it, it was, people had used it as a spitting place on the platform, despite the sign that said, do not spit. And he said, I think that's a bit like law. And yet, uh, the gentleman who was running it, he, he invited me to his home with his lovely wife and family, and, you know, he had such a beautiful home. And I'd never seen anything like it before. And I, and I was a guest in his home, and I uh, had, had a room, and uh, the, the food was wonderful, and the, the, the chairs were so comfy and lovely, and it was a beautiful home. And the funny thing was, I was looking for a sign that said, do not spit. But I couldn't find a sign that said, do not spit. And when I looked around, I didn't see any signs of spit. <laughs> I think it's because it was such a lovely place. But the people who were there 
They didn't want to spit. Why would they want to spit in this lovely, beautiful carpet and these lovely surroundings and this wonderful place to be? I think that's what grace is. And that's what each and every one of us has experienced in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It wasn't like he breezed into your life for a moment and says, oh, I've dealt with that, and then he breezed off again. He comes and says, I've dealt with that. You come with me. And he's with us for an eternity. And we're not just walking by him. He's within us, and we are within him. This is what it is to be active in grace. Paul continues on that, you know, our life, whether you can recall a single day, a, a date where you can say, oh, that was the day when I gave my life to Christ. Whether you can recall that day or not, your life is now on an upward move. It has been changed. And it's continually being changed. Where former things were used to let slide you like, I don't want to do that anymore. Because Christ is at work within me. You know, as we go about our business in life, Paul says to us, you know, God has prepared works for each of us to do. And we might be wondering, scratching our heads, well, I wonder what, I wonder what that is. You know, and we might be sitting at home saying, well, I've got to sit here and wait for 10 years till something amazing comes my way and then I'll then I'll recognize it then I'll go and do it I don't think that's what Paul means your life has been been transformed by grace when you see things through the lens of grace you will operate in a completely different way than you ever did before remember we're living in a world that's dead it doesn't see much grace anymore. What God is asking, what Jesus is asking of us, is he wants us to go about our daily business, but to do it in that lens of grace. Because when you do that, you're going to see a lots of works that God has prepared for you. You're going to see a person. You're going to see a situation. You're going to see a... a, a, a a something that you could respond in purely by grace. And by administering grace, by going in grace, by acting in grace, you're going to make a difference. You're going to be a, a, a lifesaver <laughs> in some sense. You're going to be taking that same grace that was given to you and you're going to apply it in the circumstances that you find yourself. Sometimes that would be wonderfully easy. Sometimes that would be wonderfully difficult. But that's what grace is. We're in need of grace. We're made alive in grace. And God is asking us, be active in grace. Just as I have loved you, Jesus said, love one another. There's a big white world out there. It needs to be loved as well. So, 
as you ponder, as you reflect and meditate in these passages, and I would encourage you to do so, just let it overwhelm you. <laughs> let it overwhelm you. It should. You know, the more we reflect on the nature and the character of God, the wonderful things that will do to you will surprise you. <laughs> because you have been saved by grace. You can relax in that. You can relax in it. There's nothing more that you can do or have to do. Just simply indulge yourself in it and let it overwhelm you and continue to transform you. Amen.